This program is brought to you by Emory University. Thank you so much for having me here today. And thanks for all the people who organized. And also I want to thank Michigan, who is supporting part of my travel to do some recruitment for graduate students to come to Michigan. So if you know any undergrads considering graduate school, please send them my way. I'm doing recruiting on Monday. So I was going to talk about sort of the genesis of the empathy paper that I have with Franz that was so influential in my career. Um, but then I realized there are so many ways in which he impacted my career, my life, my articles, even beyond, well beyond um, the important contribution in that one article that most is more well known. So I kind of designed it so that it's a little bit like where's Waldo and Franz's face pops in and out on the different slides. So you'll see where he comes and goes in various uh, parts of my life. So when I was in undergrad at University of Virginia, I studied perception action mechanisms in the motor system with Dan Willingham. But I was always interested in maybe having more research with animals. So in the summer, I would work with Tom Insull and um, Jim Winslow at Poolsville, where we studied monogamous bulls. And that was great work. I really liked it. But I especially liked being able to watch the social behavior of the animals interacting. That was really my favorite part. But then at the end of the last summer, he said, well, I'm moving to Atlanta. And if you want, you can come there and get a job teaching monkeys how to play video games. And I was like, well, that is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. So <laughs> you can, apparently, you can just add video plus video game to any equation. It's like a constant. It elevates the concept. And um, so I graduated from college a semester early just so I could get there even sooner and um, drove down to Atlanta, where I was so excited to start my new job teaching monkeys video games. But I am a little ingenuous, so I didn't know he was probably just kidding or like saying this in passing, like, oh, ha, 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 come down and we have this great thing, which really meant, don't I have a cool new job? Tom Insel has a cool new job. <laughs> um, so there weren't even any openings when I moved down there, and he was still a very kind person trying to help me out. And so he said, well, there's an opening for secretaries at the institute. And I was like, well, I don't really want to be a secretary. But um, he was so kind that even though there were no openings, he let me continue to work in his lab, even though clearly he did not need me. Um, because I think he felt bad that I had driven all the way down there for no reason. Um, so I continued to work in his lab. And that's where I met Larry Young and Sushin Wang, who I worked with for a few months or a half a year. And then finally an opening did come in uh, working with primates. And he said, there's this guy, Franz Duval. And I'm like, whatever, I have no idea who that is. But that sounds great. It has, you know, I really, really want to work with primates. And it was a project that Franz was doing with Filippo Arelli, um, studying the heart rate responses of macaque monkeys to social interactions. And it was really one of the greatest times in my life because I had the best job ever. Um, I got to do all the fun stuff of primatology, watching the monkeys every day, but I didn't have to write the grants. Filippo had to do all the analysis and the writing of the manuscript. <laughs> I just had to go out there and watch the monkeys all day and code videos, which actually I really love to do. So um, it, was, it was a wonderful experience, and thanks to Filippo's hard work, especially on the manuscript, um, is a paper now that has been modestly cited. I'm proud of that fact. Um, 
But I didn't end up going to graduate school at Emory um, because I wanted to study cognitive science, even though Ulrich Neisser told me in his office, you cannot study consciousness. It's just not something you can study directly, which it turns out is a little bit true. But I... <laughs> Being pig-headed and ingenuous, I didn't care. I drove to California where I thought that's what I would study. And um, that was also a great experience. I was in the lab of Lucy Jacobs, where we studied food storing animals, kangaroo rats and squirrels, and how they make decisions to hoard food or scatter hoard food. And I particularly studied a physiological mechanism that I proposed where the stress and anxiety of uncertainty or uncertain resources um, causes these shift in their food storing strategies. That was a really great experience, and my husband Brent worked in the lab next door, so we met there and got married. And we're still collaborators on many of the projects that I could tell you about today. Um, but Lucy Jacobs was a neuroethologist, and she assigned us as a class project that we had to write about any topic, but we had to explain it on all four levels of analysis via Tinbergen. So of course, having come from Franz's lab and having had such a wonderful experience there and learned so much, um, I decided to write about empathy. And, you know, it started out really as just a classic animal behavior ethology class paper. Um, but Franz helped me a lot because, um, of course, I had read all his books and I incorporated all the material from his writings into the paper. But he also had this huge envelope um, from Dan Batson of human empathy articles that Dan Batson had mailed him. So I, again, didn't know who that was, but I read all his articles. And he's very influential in the human empathy research world. And Filippo actually was the one who knew about the experiments from the 50s, where the animals were trained and conditioned, and they demonstrated emotional contagion and awareness of emotions and expressions in other animals. So those provided a really strong basis, thanks to them and the help that they provided add, added to the paper. And then around the same time, we learned about the mirror neurons in our cognitive neuroscience class. And I saw a talk, ironically, at Peter Marler's Feshrif, um, about Ralph Adolph's work showing the somatosensory cortex in human brain lesion patients is required to perceive emotional expressions. So when you take the whole of this new data in neuroscience, along with the interest I already had in these perception action motor systems, that provided like a solid groundwork to finally have approximate level theory um, of empathy. Because most of the human research I had read was kind of pedantic stuff about, well, is that really empathy? Is it empathy if it's this? Is it empathy if it's that? And I really wasn't interested in that. I just wanted to know like, how is empathy instantiated in the brain, in the body, across species? How is it continuously evolved in the nervous system? So um, this provided great evidence that we are able to put into this paper that now has still receives three citations a week. It's very exciting because I get little alerts once a week and then like the most interesting things um, are being, um, are citing it from all different fields, which is really fun to continue to look at. I don't read most of them because half of them are using this paper as a foil to say it's terrible. <laughs> this is a very popular model, but it's terrible and let me tell you why. So I don't read most of those papers. <laughs> but I like to look at the titles and um, enjoy the diversity, let's say. 
But I just wanted to say something. Um, Franz was extremely crafty mentor during this whole process. Um, he provided constant feedback that was practical, supportive, knowledge-based, but also delivered in these little packets so that I would never get overwhelmed, right? So I had like sent him a draft and then he would say, well, why don't you put something about autism in it? So then I would go and I would read all these autism papers, put them in the paper, send it back. I think you need a theory of mind section. So then I would go back, read a bunch of papers, put them in. You need some nicer figures, you know, like how about a really big table with all the articles in it? <laughs> so like one at a time, you know, if he told me all of this at once, I would have been like depressed and I probably never worked on it again. But he um, was very kind and even measured about the whole thing and it kept me working on it in a way that almost nobody could have sustained. Um, so I really appreciate that and it, it was because of France that it was a much more like rich and nuanced paper than how it started out originally. Um, so in my own lab we studied humans, I switched to studying humans and we tried to follow up on aspects of the model I take the stuff I learned from neuroethology, but I try to apply it to solve um, real-world human problems, studying human subjects, empathy, altruism, hoarding, um, <laughs> other things like that. And I really focus on this idea that empathy is mediated through these shared representations. Um, Dr. Ferrari told you about this already. And sometimes these active, uh, representations can be activated even if you don't know it, you're not aware of it, you don't have to be showing the same emotion, you don't have to be feeling the same emotion, but just for me to understand your state, it has to go through these representations which can be different across people depending on our experience. So intersubjectivity depends on our subjective experiences. Um, so that's the part that I wanted to follow up on because as you know, the mirror neuron craze was um, very active, and I just didn't want to like jump in the fray there. I'm a little more slow in plotting, and that was more of a race, <laughs> a race to nature, which I wouldn't have succeeded well in. So um, I, ch I chose this other route. So Brent and I first um, demonstrated that people naturally, spontaneously decode others' facial emotions at a semantic level, even when it's completely irrelevant to the task. So all they're supposed to do is read the word, but then they automatically get interference or facilitation from the background face, showing that it's just a natural process of perception that's spontaneous. And Franz was also instrumental in this because he came to visit us at Iowa, and he, we showed him just a pilot version of the study, a very early kind of draft of the experiment. And he said, this thing with the faces, I like, I like that thing with the faces. You should keep doing that. And you know, you could do it in all these different populations and whatnot. And so I spent like six years on it. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody reads those papers. <laughs> um, and then we found, as a, in accordance with the theory, that you don't have to be empathic for this effect. Because it's a basic perceptual decoding process, it doesn't require any special motivation and, but empathic people do actually attend more to emotional information in general. And we found that people with alexithymia, people who have trouble expressing, understanding, and describing emotional feelings, they are perfectly fine on the Emostroop task. 
So we demonstrated that they're able to decode the emotions at this very early level, and so they surely do have some impairment, but it must be later on in the process. In Iowa, we did a functional neuroimaging um, study on cognitive empathy showing similarly this idea of representations where if you can relate really well to the other person's story, this is the other person's story, and this is you telling your own story of the same emotion, they overlap to the extent that there are no significant differences at the whole brain level between me imagining my event and imagining your event, if I can relate to them. And you can only show significant differences if I can't relate to your story, and then I recruit more like visual, um, literal areas to understand your story. And we did a lot of work at Iowa and Michigan with these patient videos where we show hospital patients with serious or terminal illness exhibit a, a wide range of emotions. And you can classify the patients based on the types of emotions that they express. And then you can show the videos to other people who then mainly show matching emotions. So the very distressed patients elicit distress. The very happy patients elicit amusement. And then there's a um, patient who just doesn't exhibit emotion. He's sort of laconic and um, quiet. And he doesn't elicit any emotions in people, which makes sense because he's not expressing any. But it ends up having implications where people don't feel empathy for him. And they offer him significantly less help, um, even though he clearly is in the same situation as the other people. And people with a history of depression feel more empathy and they offer more aid to the depressed patients or the distraught patients, as you might expect. But in a, a, a kind of unexpected twist that makes sense, having current depression makes you less interested in helping the distraught patient and more interested in helping the happy patient. So you can think about ways in which that might be the case, but um, we need to do research to be sure. So this happy versus distraught patient made me realize um, that there's this kind of dissociation in types of motivations to help others. So again, because of Franz, I had met Ronald Noe, who has this biological markets theory that really hasn't penetrated into psychology, where you can help somebody to um, be their social partner, to benefit from resources that they have. And so you can imagine maybe empathy and altruism would drive you to help sad people who are in need, but a social affiliation might drive you to help happy people instead, because those seem like more successful social partners, perhaps. Um, so we did a sort of ethological study where we had happy, sad, or neutral confederates follow people into public buildings on campus and see if they hold the door open for them. So there's no hold, there's fake push where you go like this, but you don't actually touch the door. <laughs> there's like a little bit of a push, there's hold it, and then there's hold it and usher you in, which almost never happens except almost only to happy people on campus. In general, people hold the door more for happy people than sad people. But I thought, well, I mean, on campus, it might seem socially non-normative to be sad walking around. So let's try it at the hospital. Maybe that will seem like a context that makes sense. Um, to be sad and to be in need. And people really don't want to hold the door for you at the hospital, especially if you're sad. So the happy bias still exists even at the hospital. And the only way we could mitigate it was putting a Band-Aid on the person's head so that they more literally looked like they needed help. 
But <laughs> you could say, well, maybe that's just because these people are walking around. They maybe don't need help. So we tried it with our actual patients. And if you only have to donate money, people give more. They prefer the sad patient because they clearly need more help, and they say that. Um, but if you have to sit and talk to them, which is more like the succulent consolatory aid that Franz and Filippo studied, then a lot more people shift over to choosing to help the happy patient, even though they clearly say they don't need help as much. Um, so then we've had this offspring care model in Psychological Bulletin, and I was very proud of myself. Like, I wrote this big paper in France, didn't even help me, but then of course that's not true because half of the articles I cited are things I learned about from Franz. So, I mean, he's a clear like building block of the entire thing. And he himself has um, talked about this theory. So he's cited heavily many aspects of this. And there's one other reason maybe he was involved because there was this very nice reviewer who um, would tell me nice, evenly spaced packets of information <laughs> things I could add to the paper to make it better. But we don't know for sure who that was. <laughs> so there's a lot of neuroscience in this because it's based on a rodent neural circuit for offspring care. Um, but there is a lot of stuff that, again, harkens back to Franz, because in the rodent literature, they dissociate active care, like retrieving an offspring, um, as described in the capuchin monkeys in the field, and passive offspring care, like huddling and nursing and grooming. So this kind of, to me, sounds like the consolatory behavior versus the kind of rescue behavior that Franz gives such great examples of. This is Bintijua. And also, without Franz, it never would have occurred to me to skirt copyright law by drawing my own figures. <laughs> so I followed up on this research recently, particularly by studying neoteny in non-offspring contexts. I have a grant from the Hyundai Corporation. And um, of course, Franz is involved again because he's the one who reminded me of this nice figure from Lorenz that I included a lot of those papers. Um, and we also do some stuff to follow up on this neural system where um, you presumably are not supposed to help when you're aroused or stressed. But in a heroic context or an immediate need situation, glucocorticoids and arousal and things like that are actually helpful for responding. So we found that people show a cortisol matching response to stressed speakers like myself, and more so if they're empathic. So um, remember that. And um, we would like to thank Franz for this because I did submit it to a very prestigious journal run by an elite group of scholars in the country, but it was rejected from there, so we cannot. <laughs> no credit for that one. <laughs> and we followed up on this in a few ways with some experiments, um, some of which is also replicating Franz's um, comment that he often makes in his work that females are often more empathic or they show greater aid than males, um, which we find in our charity donation experiments. And we even find that our motor arousal primes work better on females in increasing donation than they do in males, which I have to figure out. Lastly, I just want to um, say again, another thing that Franz did that was so generous is I gave a conference on my consumption research related to this hoarding theme. Um, and sustainability, and I invited Franz to be a speaker, as everybody would, and he really didn't want to come. 
So clearly he came, I think, out of like an altruistic sense of helping me, an assistant professor who needed a little boost maybe in their career. And because Franz came, Robert Freak was willing to come. <laughs> and then because the two of them were there, a lot more people showed up at this conference. And I, I think it really was like a huge boon to my career. And I really thank Franz for you know, taking one for the team and um, <laughs> giving his great presentation at Michigan. And we now have a book on the, from the conference. And um, uh, Bob Frank and Lisa and Franz, I mean, Sarah and Franz have a chapter in it. But I just wanted to remind Franz um, before he realizes what a fest shrift is, that he was very clear that you are not supposed to write chapters about conferences that you're invited to. <laughs> <laughs> so I've taken that rule to heart. No, I'm just kidding. Um, normally I end my talks with a reference to Lincoln and the speech about our better angels, but I think in this case it's more appropriate to say, you know, Franz has been like an angel in my career, helping me all along the way in so many different ways and modeling good mentorship, not just the science, but also in how you interact with people and motivate them. And, um, you know, I think I want to show my appreciation for all the angels who helped me along the way that we showed here today. Thank you. We have time for one short question. That's very possible. I think that's very possible. At the hospital, there's also the problem of they don't know if the person just works there and is walking around or is a patient. Uh, at first, we were wearing a gown, but then I guess that seemed like overkill, so we were just dressed regular. Um, and then there's also the issue of the people at the hospital being extremely busy and it's like lunchtime. And so I think there's multiple issues there, but I think that would be a really interesting thing to follow up on to see if people, there is some research on the evolution of disease avoidance. So I think that would be really interesting. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.